What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. I love the sound of everyone joyfully talking. It's so beautiful. Um, My name is McKaylee, and today we're going to be reading from Matthew 9. Matthew 9. 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, McKaylee. Good morning, Park Church. Good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. I do a lot of uh, preaching at our other congregation up in the Highlands, but it's a joy to be down here with you all. Uh, As we get going, I just want to kind of remind you, he is risen. He's risen indeed. He's risen indeed. Jesus is still alive. Uh, We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every Sunday. It's what Christians do. We celebrate the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and what his death and resurrection means for us, for our lives, and for the world, bringing hope. And in particular, in the 50 days after Resurrection Sunday, which we celebrated a couple weeks ago, all the way to Pentecost Sunday, which we celebrate a few weeks from now, uh, it's a season that the church has historically called Eastertide, where we continue to remember and to celebrate that Jesus is alive. Jesus has risen from the dead, and his resurrection means that there's hope for everything that's broken in the world. Everywhere where there's darkness, everywhere there's pain, everywhere where there's injustice, everywhere where there's sin, everywhere where there's shame, everywhere there's guilt, everywhere where society is fractured, the resurrection of Jesus brings hope into everything. And so that's what we're here to celebrate and to worship. And, uh, and then this morning, we get the privilege of looking in the Gospel of Matthew uh, at the beauty of God's grace. Uh, the beauty of God's grace towards us. And we see it in the call to Matthew. Matthew was the author of uh, this particular gospel. It's a biography about the life and the ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And here in this moment, we get to read Matthew sharing his own story about God's grace to him. And he's actually sharing it with us so that we could see in Jesus' grace towards him the fact that Jesus has grace towards us all. And so we're going to pray that his grace would uh, strike us in fresh ways this morning, that we would know his grace and his love through the Spirit. So would you pray with me? Um, Jesus, you are alive, and that is beautiful news, um, that we gather today as men and women, as children who get to gather not having to perform, not having to prove, not having to pretend, but we get to gather as Uh, both beautiful and broken people, beautiful because you made us, broken because we've run from you. And we gather as we are, uh, just like Paul was saying over us during the confession, we gather as we are to experience cleansing, forgiveness, healing, transformation, and life through your grace. And so Jesus, would you light up our hearts with awe and wonder and joy as we consider your amazing grace towards us. In Christ's name, amen. If I were to ask you what you think defines a Christian, like what makes someone a Christian, 
uh, what would you think about? What would be your first thought? Maybe it would be uh, a Christian is someone who has uh, prayed a prayer to accept Jesus into their life. Uh, There's nothing inherently wrong with a prayer, but there were years and traditions where praying a prayer, or as it was known, the prayer, uh, to accept Jesus into your life, that's what made you a Christian. And so the whole goal is to get your children to pray the prayer, to get your neighbor to pray the prayer, to get somebody on an airplane or a coworker to pray the prayer, as if we say a certain words or set of words in the right way with some sense of earnestness, that that's what makes us a Christian. That's true, we're, we're called to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, but is that what a Christian is? Uh, other people would say a Christian is somebody who uh, attends religious services. You come on Sundays, or if you grew up in a tradition, kind of, uh, you came on Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, youth group, all the rest. Like, if you're attending religious community, if you go to a church, then you are a Christian. Or maybe it's kind of adhering to a certain set of doctrinal beliefs. If you believe the right things and if your beliefs kind of square with some kind of like circle of what you think Christians have to believe, uh, that's what makes you a Christian. Or maybe it's a certain set of behaviors. If you kind of have the right behaviors and abstain from the wrong behaviors and if you're kind of like more or less moral or have good ethics and do the right thing, that makes you a Christian. Now, what, what do you think? Well, do you know that the word Christian itself is only used three times in the whole New Testament? Three times. Uh, and it's one of the kind of later words that was used to define Christian community, or define the, the people of God. It actually wasn't used until about a decade after the resurrection of Jesus. Before that, and most of the time throughout the New Testament, the word that was used to describe the community of kind of the people of God or the followers of Jesus was those who belong to the way. Those who actually practice the way of Jesus, who actually see themselves as those who follow Jesus in his way of life. And so they have experienced this reconciliation with him, and then they're following his way of life. And that kind of would harken back to the way Jesus would describe his own followers as disciples. Disciples. The word disciples is a word that we don't use that often uh, in kind of contemporary living. It's not used in culture that often. But it's just a word that's describing an apprentice of a master, a leader, or in the first century Jewish culture, the kind of follower or an apprentice of a rabbi. And so there are rabbis that would journey around and disciples would be those who came into relationship or were accepted into a kind of relationship with the rabbi where they were in community with the rabbi, in relationship with the rabbi, but then also watching the way the rabbi would live, listening to the way the rabbi would teach, and watching the way they'd operate in different kinds of scenarios, in the way that the early church, the kind of first Christians, understood themselves was primarily as followers of Jesus, disciples of or apprentices of Jesus. And so the question we have to ask is, what, what makes somebody today, what would make us a disciple of Jesus or an apprentice of Jesus? And really, that's one of the powerful things that the Gospels do. The Gospels give us this insight into who Jesus was, what he came to do, and what it means to follow him, what it means to be his disciple. And so as we read through the Gospels, if you're kind of new to Christianity and you've never read through the Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible, help you find a Bible to to start reading. But a great place to start is in any of the Gospels, and the Gospel of Matthew is a great place. And you could just start reading and, and asking these questions. Based on what I'm reading here, who is this saying that Jesus is? What are the claims he's making of himself and what are the claims others are making about him? What is, it, what is it saying he came to do? Did he come to help us believe right things? Did he help, come to help us to, to do the right stuff or to kind of clean ourselves up? What, what, is he, what is he come to do? 
And then what does it actually mean to follow him? And in the section of Matthew we're in right now, it has a lot to do with who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what it means to follow him. This section from Matthew chapter 8 all the way through the end of Matthew 9 and into Matthew 10, it's giving these stories of his power, his power to heal, his power to restore, his power to cleanse, his power to forgive, his power over nature, his power over the spiritual realm, his power to forgive sins. And in this moment here, we're going to see what it means to actually see his power at work in calling us into relationship with him, to actually bring reconciliation towards human beings who have run from him, who have failed, who feel broken, who feel shame, who feel isolated or marginalized or full of guilt or full of weakness or full of mistakes or regrets. And as he uses his power to invite people into the relationship, what we'll see in this passage is at the core, disciple is someone who has been reconciled to God by grace. Sheer, outstanding, beautiful, amazing grace. That to be a Christian isn't first and foremost to to obey certain kind of behavioral ethics. It's not first and foremost to believe a certain set of doctrines. It's just to receive this invitation of Jesus. Come be with me by grace. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to perform. You don't have to pretend. You can be exactly who you are with all the shame and the darkness and the brokenness and the struggles and the mistakes and the regrets. And you can experience and receive my love. And it's grace. It's all grace. And so we're, gonna, we're just going to walk through the passage here and, uh, and unpack it and make a few observations as we go through. And so if you, don't, uh, if you close your Bible, I invite you to open it back up or you can flip to it in your phone. Uh, but I, wanna, I want you to see what's happening in this passage. Uh, Matthew has decided to put his story right here in the midst of all of these incredible healing stories because he understands what God did in his life in this moment was nothing less than miraculous healing. And it's the same thing he's actually extending to us, that this is what Jesus and his grace and his love can do for you. Uh, so we're going to pick up the passage, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, I'm going to warn you, uh, I, lo- I love biblical history, and so we're going we're gonna to take a little historical uh, journey. Uh, and so if you hate history, I apologize in advance. Uh, if you like history, this might be fun. Uh, but we're going to unpack uh, to try to understand what, uh, what's happening in this passage. Look with me at Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. Uh, It's saying when Jesus passed on, Jesus has just healed what Pastor Matt preached last week. Uh, He healed this paralyzed man. He forgave his sins. He healed him. There's this huge crowd growing around him. And as Jesus is in this town of Capernaum where Peter's from and and Andrew's from and James and John, they're all from this little fishing village on the kind of border of Galilee. And he's healing. And all these people have experienced these miraculous uh, kind of experiences of his power and healing. They've watched it. They've experienced it. A loved one has experienced it. And so this big crowd is beginning to follow him. They just want to listen to him. They want to hear what he says. They want to watch what he does. They want to experience some of it for themselves. And so they're following him. And so he's walking through Capernaum and he passes by a tax booth. And at the tax booth, there's a man named Matthew. So what, what is Matthew doing? Uh, Matthew is what the Bible refers to as a tax collector. A tax collector was an official position in the Roman provinces as the Roman Empire had kind of spread uh, around the known world at that time. And there were these provinces. And in the provinces, the Romans would appoint tax collectors who were kind of selected from among the people that they had kind of occupied. And so Matthew is one of these tax collectors. What we have to slow down and pay attention to is why this is such a big deal. 
If you're familiar with uh, Christianity, tax collectors, uh, you might be familiar, kind of always have a negative connotation in the Gospels. It always seems like Jesus is doing something special among them, but you've learned that a tax collector is almost always paired up with this other word, which is sinners. Often, even including in this passage, we will talk about tax collectors and sinners. And it's because the Jewish people saw the tax collectors as truly the worst. I mean, they were the worst of the worst. They were despised with a uh, kind of sort of vitriolic disdain. They, they hated the tax collectors. Why? Here's history moment. So buckle up, put your history kind of learning caps on. Way back, a uh, couple hundred, several hundred centuries before, God had called a man named Abraham. And Abraham, he had called and said, I'm going to bring restoration to the world through you and your offspring through your descendants. And I'm going to bless those who bless you and I'm going to curse those who curse you and through you and through your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And in the context, the blessing is the restoration of God's presence with human beings through which forgiveness and grace and transformation and and healing comes in that God would bring a a kind of a sort of peace or a shalom or a wholeness or restoration to the world through Abraham and Abraham's offspring. And it's a huge promise saying to this one man, through you and your wife Sarah and through your offspring, I'm going to restore everything that's been broken in the world. And so that promise mobilized Abraham and he trusted off and on, struggling and failing and struggling and failing in God's promise. And Abraham had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob and Jacob had 12 children. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. They find themselves in slavery in Egypt. And, uh, and then God redeems them through the blood of a lamb, through the waters of the Red Sea. He redeems them from slavery in Egypt and brings them out. And in the wilderness, he tells the Israelites that they are to be faithful to him. And when they trust in him and they follow his way of life, they will be like a light to the world. And the nations will come and they will see the nation of Israel and they'll see the glory of God among them and they'll experience healing and transformation and change and they'll turn from these false gods and find the one true God, the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in them and they would experience healing and change. And these are huge, huge promises. Huge promises that this little nation would be the means by which God brings restoration to the world. So the people of Israel begin to take this land, this land of Canaan, and, and there are a few generations where there's a sense of like beauty and peace and growth and glory. And it was really beautiful. This is in the times of like David and, and Solomon. And then the kingdom shattered and they began to uh, fail and they began to turn to other gods and other ways and they ceased to be faithful to God. And, and these world superpowers are rising. So you had the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And in the 6th century BC, the Babylonians were just on the roll throughout the world, taking nation after nation, civilization after civilization, community after community. We're just kind of defeating them, suppressing them, objectifying them to all sorts of injustices. And they took the people of Israel captive. And for 70 years, they were captive. And from that moment forward, Israel's dreams began to get darker and darker. Their dreams became very bleak uh, because they felt so small in this world full of these massive superpowers. First, it was the Babylonians. After the Babylonians, the Persians began to roll over. They defeated the Babylonians. Now the people of Israel are back in the land, but they're under the thumb of the Persians. After the Persians, it was Alexander the Great and the Greeks. After Alexander the Great and the Greeks, that kingdom divided. And then the people of Israel were under the thumb of these people called the Seleucids. And they were thinking this whole time, this whole time, that the reason why we have been kind of like subjugated and oppressed and have this like huge promise. The reason why it's been made to nothing is because we are unfaithful to God's 
Torah. We were unfaithful to God's instruction. So this whole kind of community began to grow called the Pharisees. And this Pharisaical community, their belief was that if we can clean ourselves up, if we can start doing the right thing, if we can follow God's wisdom, if we can get rid of those people who are doing the wrong thing, and if we can help everybody in Israel follow the rules, read the word, memorize the scripture, do everything God told us to do, get the temple back in order, make the sacrifices, do all the things that God's people are supposed to do, then God will come and he'll send his Messiah and save us. If we do the right thing, then God will save us. If we clean ourselves up, then God will save us. If we are righteous and restore righteousness, then God will save us. And after the Seleucids, the, the Romans came in. This is the greatest empire the world had ever seen and took over just incredible swaths of, of the world. And they installed these tax collectors as agents through which they would exact an oppressive tax scheme. It was an oppressive tax scheme. It was a tax scheme where the people of Israel would be required when they were traveling to and from different provinces, when they were producing certain goods or services to pay an incredible amount of taxes, an incredibly high percentage that made it almost impossible for them to sustain a livable wage. It made it almost impossible for them to feed their families, almost impossible for them to maintain their living or their household, almost impossible for them to do anything except just meagerly get by. And so there's this nation with these huge promises of how they're going to bring light to the world. And God's going to bring salvation and restoration to the world through this nation. But what they've experienced for centuries is being this little teeny pawn in the kind of like system of these world empires. And in that system, the Romans would select these people from the people groups that they had oppressed to exact these taxes. And so a tax collector, actually people would bid to actually get the job of a tax collector because the tax collectors would get paid an incredibly high wage. What the tax collectors would do is they would have a booth in the middle of the town, and when people are traveling in and out, they'd have to pay the tax. When people produced goods and services, whatever their occupation was, they would pay a tax. And so people would just have to pay the taxes to the tax collector at the tax booth. And every moment they're paying this, they're saying, I'm struggling to get by. I'm struggling to even make a livable wage. And now I'm paying this Caesar who lives over in Rome to kind of pad his empire. I'm paying to support this Roman military occupation, which is crushing us and holding us under their thumb. And I'm paying to support this tax collector who's living the good life, making a ton of money by participating in the unjust, unjust oppression of our people. And so the tax collectors, for a Jewish person to say, I'm going to betray or defect from my people, I'm going to kind of saddle up with the Romans, and I'm going to make my money off of the Roman Empire's oppression of my own people. And that's why the tax collectors were the most despised community in all of Israel. They embodied everything that was wrong with Israel. Everything. They had forsaken obedience to the Torah. They had compromised with foreign superpowers. They had forsaken temple worship. They weren't even allowed to go into the synagogues anymore. They had done it all for the sake of their own personal profit. And they had done it in a way that had perpetuated this oppression of their own people. And so as the people of Israel are trying to live and make their way and they see Roman centurion guards all over the place and they're paying their taxes, the person that embodied all of that brokenness in their mind is the tax collector. Absolutely despised. And so when Jesus 
healing all of these people, doing all these miracles. And everybody's like, he's loving the poor. He's healing the sick. He's healing the wounded. He's teaching the ways we've never seen before. It's beautiful. And he's walking by and he sees a tax booth and he sees Matthew sitting there. And he says, to Matthew, a tax collector, follow me. Be with me. You're going to be a part of my community. It would have been absolutely stunning. It would have ripped apart their categories. It would have devastated them. To see someone accept and love a tax collector would have embodied kind of a whole new way of thinking that would have disrupted every fabric of the kind of first century Jewish thought. And that's what Jesus does. And it brings us to the first observation that Jesus came to reconcile people to God by grace. Absolute, sheer, astounding, amazing grace. When Jesus says to Matthew, he says, follow me. It's a clear invitation to discipleship. It's the phrase that would have been used for a rabbi to invite somebody to be a disciple. What's different about this is in the first century, the way that most rabbis would get followers is potential would-be disciples or apprentices would basically apply to become a disciple of the best of the best rabbis. And so the rabbis would be able to choose the cream of the crop, the best of the best. And so they, they would look for people like, who, who are the sort of, you know, who are the Mother Teresas and who are the Mr. Rogers and, and who are the Billy Grahams and who are the people that seem to have, they have this stuff together and I want to find the best of the best and I'm going to kind of pull them. And, and basically people would be saying like, look, uh, I studied the Bible and Torah school. I went to Bet Sefer. I went to Bet Midrash, which is kind of primary and secondary school. Uh, I started learning kind of rabbinic interpretations and I've cleaned myself up. I follow all the laws. I sacrifice perfectly. I go to the temple. I follow the feasts. I follow the fast. And they would kind of prove to the potential rabbi, like, look, aren't I good enough to be your disciple? And the rabbi would say, well, there's like 10 of you that are as good as you. So I'm going to pick the top three. So the best of the best of the best get to be disciples of these rabbis. Because for them, the rabbis would actually say that the kind of quality of their disciples would say something about the quality of the rabbi. And Jesus just kicked that system in the teeth. He said, my goal is not to show how great I am by the performance of my people. The goal for Jesus is to choose the least of these, the worst of the worst, the broken and the rebellious, not to prove how incredibly like uh, powerful he was, but to, to prove how incredibly beautiful and massive his grace is towards people. That Matthew wants this story in here to say, if, if Jesus could choose someone like me, he can certainly choose you. If Jesus would accept somebody like me, he would certainly accept you. If Jesus would forgive somebody like me, he would no doubt about it forgive someone like you. I was the worst. And I didn't do anything. I didn't ask him. I didn't clean myself up. I didn't follow the rules. I didn't sacrifice in the systems. I actually had done all these things to hurt people. And he just welcomed me. And it says in the passage that immediately Matthew stood up and followed him. He rose and he followed him. In that moment, two things are happening for Matthew. To receive this gracious invitation, two things are happening. One, he believes that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the money he was making. Jesus is better than the life he was trying to create. Jesus is better. He's better. And so he believes and he repents. He actually turns, right? From that moment forward, Matthew didn't work in the tax booth anymore. He let go of the life he'd been trying to build apart from God, and he trusted in the love that God was giving him freely. 
And that's the core of what it means to be a disciple, to let go of the life we're trying to build apart from God and to trust in the love that God gives us freely. In Denver, it's more of like this sort of good life that we're trying to build. If we can kind of construct the good life, if we can go to the mountains and do cool recreational things, if we can go to the right stores or get the right house or have the right friends or wear the right clothes or do whatever we need to do, and we try so hard to like be enough to, to, to establish this life that's like finally meaningful and joyful and together and hopeful and everything I want life to be, to establish this flourishing life apart from God. And when Jesus comes, he says, hey, follow me. And what he offers to us is a love that satisfies us apart from our works, apart from our effort, even in the face of our own failures and mistakes. Jesus came to reconcile people to God by grace. And when Jesus said to Matthew, follow me, and Matthew arose, which is the same word used for resurrection, it's like Matthew came to life in this moment. When he comes to life and he follows him in that moment, Matthew had been, apart from anything he had ever done, reconciled to God by grace. Because Jesus is God. And Matthew is invited into relationship with God by grace. And it's stunning. It's a stunning, stunning reality. I think for many of us, we try so hard. We think God's love for us ebbs and flows with our performance. We think that if we clean ourselves up enough, if we do the right things and don't do the wrong things and do all the kind of like Christian stuff we're supposed to do, then God will love us. And on the flip side, if we're failing to do it, God probably needs us to clean ourselves up, or we feel shame, or we feel guilt, or we come into a community like this, and we're like, I don't know if I measure up. And Jesus is just saying, hey, to you right now, follow me, be with me. You don't have to do anything to be in relationship to me. You don't have to do anything to experience my love. You don't have to do anything. Just, just be with me. And that's an invitation to all of us right now. Be with him to be with him, to wake up tomorrow morning or go home this afternoon or right now when we take communion here in a few moments just to know God loves you. He loves you. And he's invited you to experience his love right now, today, with all your regrets and your failures, with the shame and the sin you carry, the stuff people know and the stuff that people don't know. He knows all of it and he says to you, be with me. I've invited you into relationship apart from anything that you've ever done or would do. And it's beautiful. The second thing I want us to see is that through that grace, Jesus is actually building a community of grace. He's building a community of grace. Look at what it says in the passage. It says right here, it says, and Jesus reclined at table in the house. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. In the Gospel of Luke, you learn more about this story that Matthew, after he had experienced this gracious invitation of Jesus, uh, he kind of hosted a big feast in his house. And he invited his friends who were with him the worst of the worst, the sort of social outcasts, the people that were broken like him, and, and the people that were known in society as the tax collectors and the sinners, the people that weren't accepted in synagogue, weren't accepted at the temple, the people that the kind of Pharisaic or the sort of like a religious elite would have said, these people are, they are the problem in our society. Until these people get their stuff together and clean themselves up, the Messiah will never come. He'll never come. And now all of a sudden the Messiah is sitting there hanging out with them. Just enjoying their company. It's not saying he's not teaching them. He's not tutoring them. He's just reclining at table. He's just feasting with them. He is the friend of sinners. He just like hangs out with us in our brokenness. 
He spends time with us. He loves us. He, he's, he welcomes us exactly as we are. And because of that, he's actually building a community of grace. And I say a community of grace juxtaposed to a community of performance. In a community of performance, you think you have to prove something to be accepted. You have to show that you've got your stuff together. You're kind of a put-together person. Or you feel like you have to perform a certain way. Or at least pretend that you perform a certain way. And that whole cycle is just exhausting. It is freaking exhausting. To feel like you have to be a certain type of person to be accepted. And so you try and you try and you strive and you strive and you exert all this incredible amount of energy to be who you're supposed to be. To be this ideal version of yourself who people expect you to be. And, and deep down there's shame and deep down there's regret and deep down there's exhaustion. And so that kind of pressure to perform eventually kind of runs its course. And then you start to pretend. You know you're not. So you're not even trying anymore, but you still pretend for a little while. You move from performance to pretending. And in the pretending, you still have this darkness that you're aware of, but when you show up in community, you just tuck it all away. You don't let anybody see. You don't even want to pay attention to yourself. That part of you, the kind of darker shadow side of you, is just like, keep that back. And, and what you present to your small group, what you present to your spouse, or what you present to your friendship community is this ideal picture of yourself, even though you know it's not true. And that sort of like disintegration, that breaking of who you present and who you actually are is just so destructive, spiritually, emotionally destructive, because you start operating with this sort of like presentation view of yourself, what you're projecting to the world, and the real self is over here. And that sort of, that sort of hypocrisy, this mask wearing, is, is toxic for the soul. Because you're never going to experience the love of God. God loves the real you, but as much as you're committed to this kind of idealistic presentation of yourself and not being honest about who you really are, then you will continue not just to pretend you are something you aren't, but you'll actually live in this culture where you don't admit and own your need for grace, your need for healing, your need for forgiveness, your need for grace, not just from God, but from other people. And the community that Jesus is building is one where people who know they're broken are welcomed. Where sinful and broken people are loved and accepted. You see this kind of group of people flocking to Jesus and Matthew kind of saying to others, he loved me, he can love you. And this people that had maybe experienced so much marginalization in their society. If you put yourself in Matthew's shoes, he's a cog in the system of Rome. He's not loved by the Romans. He's a cog in their system. And he's a betrayer, a defector from his own family, his own friends, his own community. You imagine just the isolation and the loneliness and all of a sudden to feel loved and accepted and welcomed into a community. And for other people like him to feel the same thing, it creates a different kind of community. And so the question we have to ask is what kind of community are we building? Are we going to build a community of performance where you show up at small group and you've got to button it all up and, you know, look the part and play the part and know the answers and say the right things. Meanwhile, your marriage is hurting. You're struggling with sin addictions. Your heart for Jesus, like, died a long time ago, but these are your friends. And, uh, and you are struggling as a parent, you're just depressed at work, you're so overwhelmed with anxiety, you're up late drinking just to numb the pain of life. And all these things are just real. They're just real. It's what's going on. It's what's going on. In you. That's the real you. All that stuff's the real you. And is the real you allowed to show up at small group? Is the real you allowed to be in a gathering like this? Or is it just the ideal you? And the way that we cultivate that is through vulnerability is by being honest, especially for leaders among us, that we be honest about the brokenness, honest about the shame, honest about the darkness, honest about the weariness, honest about the, the, the parts of us that are hard for us to face, but they're the parts of us where Jesus shines the healing power of his grace into us. We, we want to be a community where we are beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. 
That we, this, is just, this is just who we are. He loves me. He can love you. And to cultivate a community like that requires honesty, vulnerability, and courage. But it's a type of community where Jesus brings incredible grace and healing and power into a community like that. Jesus is building a community of grace. Third observation here, that the grace of Jesus confronts our efforts to build our life on our own. It confronts our efforts to build our life on our own. And that's what's happening in the Jewish community here. Uh, the Pharisees get a bad rap because of stories like this where they just seem like total, you know, just not, not the people you want to hang out with. They just don't seem like, I really want to be friends with that community. Um, but here they are. They get a bad rap, but, but they really shouldn't because at the core, what they're saying is they're just really serious about the Bible. They, they, they love the Bible. These are the Bible teachers. They're the scholars, the seminarians and the seminary professors. They're the ones who are kind of Christian leaders. They're kind of the people of God leaders. And it says right here in the passage, it says, the Pharisees, when they saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like, what is this supposed rabbi, this maybe Messiah, people are like remarking about his authority for, to forgive sins and to heal and they're beginning to follow him. Why would you hang out with somebody that hangs out with people like that? Why would you do that? And you're like, man, what a, what a hard-hearted people. Now remember, Matthew had been participating in the oppression of this people. Matthew, like, it wasn't like, oh, a sweet little like, uh, story about Jesus saving a person that was going through a rough patch is Jesus had welcomed somebody who was actively participating in their oppression. And Matthew and these sinners were seen as the people who were the cause of the Messiah not coming. So you think about things like Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 1, the first psalm, which says, Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's creating this thing like the, the blessed person is not the one who fraternizes with the broken and the sinful and the scoffers, but they delight in God's instruction. Which do you think the Pharisees saw themselves as? Definitely those who delighted in the instruction of the Torah of God. Not those who are walking the way. So when they see Jesus, it feels like Jesus is sitting in the seat of scoffers. He's walking in the counsel of the wicked. He's standing in the way of sinners. It seems like Jesus is doing exactly what Psalm 1 tells him not to do. It's like, why are you putting your hope in that guy? And the reality is when Jesus came as Messiah, he's coming not to help people do all the right things they were supposed to do. He's actually coming to, uh, to forgive and to transform us from the inside out, to actually deal with the root cause of brokenness. And that's what he says right here in the passage. When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's saying, this is why I came. I came to meet people in their brokenness, the brokenness caused by human rebellion. And that brokenness is like a disease that is inside all of us. And it was inside the Pharisees. The Pharisees decided to mask that disease through self-righteousness and performance. They were trying to build a system in which they could exalt themselves with their own efforts. And you can do that with religious stuff. You can become a Christian leader by doing the right things and saying the right things and learning the right things and growing in these skills and serving in the right ways. And everybody's like, oh man, you must be so great. This is like the, one of the toxic things about pastoral ministry is if you kind of lift yourself up like, oh, I want to be a good person like that person. If we, if we what we present and promote 
mode is like, hey, this is a system where we kind of like clean ourselves up and we kind of climb up some religious ladder. And, and if you want to follow me, just work hard like me and learn the things like me and do the things like me. If we create that kind of culture, then what we're actually communicating to each other is that the way we're going to experience the, the transformative power of God is by our effort. And nothing could be further from the truth. The way to experience the transformative power of God is by being honest about our brokenness. It's by being honest about our sin. It's about being honest about our exhaustion, our inability, and our idolatries. And those show themselves up in all of our lives in different ways. For some people, it's just this sort of self-sufficient effort to build your own life apart from God. And you can do that in a religious system. You can do that in a Denver system. You can do that according to your family values. Build the right family, get the right job, establish the right lifestyle. Just go for it. And as much as you feel like you're winning that game, you will never need Jesus. And you will never experience the, the power of his grace and his love. And so if Jesus comes in accepting people who failed at the game you're trying to win, it confronts your system. It confronts the economy in which you think that the sort of like life is kind of like going to be lived by us doing this, these things for ourselves to exalt ourselves. And if Jesus loves the people who failed at that game, who lost that game, what it means is all the efforts that we had put towards establishing this great life really amount to zero, which is exactly what Paul, the apostle, who was a Pharisee, said. When I lived my whole life trying to achieve and perform and follow all the rules and keep all the things and learn all the stuff and study under the right people, what I learned is all of those things had become an obstacle for me experiencing the love of God. And that's what Jesus quotes in this passage. He quotes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And he tells these Bible scholars, hey, go study your Bible. Go study your Bible. Read Hosea 6. I desire mercy. The Hebrew word behind that word there is chesed. It's steadfast love. What I, what I desire is steadfast love. What I desire is relationship, a relationship of love with my people, not sacrifice. The point has never been sacrifice. The point has never been the rules. The point has never been all the things you're supposed to do. The point has been relationship with the God who made you to experience his love, to receive his love, and then to extend his love to other people. And so good, you're following all the rules. Good, you're in Denver living the life you're trying to live and kind of striving and striving and striving. Good, you believe the right things and you hop on Facebook and we, we kind of get mad at who's saying the right things and who's saying the wrong things and who believes the right things and who believes the wrong things. And what Jesus is saying is when you focus on dividing communities by who's in and who's out, you miss the point of the whole thing. You just missed the point. The point was to know God, to experience his love, to walk in his love and let his love change you from the inside out to be a human being who reflects that love in the world. That was the heart of the whole thing. It's the heart of the whole thing. And so Jesus came to actually show those who are admitting their brokenness, his incredible love for them and through that love to change us. And that's what that last observation is this, that the grace of Jesus brings transformation. In that first moment, Matthew hears this invitation of Jesus and sees for the first time love, acceptance, welcome, invitation. And Matthew follows him. He leaves the tax booth and he starts following him. Matthew would keep following him for about three years, watching him love, watching him serve, watching him teach, watching him show patience, watching him confront injustice, watching him care for the hurting, watching him heal. And little by little, Matthew would learn. Little by little, all in relationship with Jesus, all experiencing his love, Matthew would would learn and Matthew would change. Then Matthew would see the way in which Jesus was able to forgive him as he saw Jesus laying down his life on a cross. That the sin that Matthew had experienced wasn't inconsequential, it wasn't negligible, it wasn't not a big deal. It was a big deal. 
And Jesus came to lay down his life to forgive us of all of the big deals we've ever done. All the brokenness, all the shame. And, and, and Matthew watched him. And then Matthew saw him alive and experienced this new life. And Matthew spent years helping other people see the love of God, see the grace of Jesus, learn who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what it means to follow him. And then one day Matthew decided to write a story about it. And we're reading it right now. And the reason why Matthew wrote a story about it is because he wants to say, if he would call me, he can call you. If he would love me, he can love you. If he could forgive me, he can forgive you. If he would accept me, he can accept you. If he would use me to be an agent through which he brings his blessing to the world, then he can use you. He can use us to be agents of his grace. We just have to hear his call. Son, daughter, follow me and receive his love. Let's pray together. Jesus, we right now pray that you would, through your spirit, call out over us, follow me, follow me. Be with me. Come. Experience my love. Experience my grace. Experience my forgiveness. That I'm not one who condemns the world. I didn't come to condemn the world. I didn't come to heap shame on the world. I didn't come to, to crush you with guilt and pressure. I came to seek and to save the lost. I came as a physician for the broken. I came to bring hope to the hurting. I came to forgive the guilty like we heard the invitation. I am the justifier of the inexcusable. I came to, to meet people in the midst of their brokenness and to transform them by love. And so Jesus, I pray that your love would reach us right now in powerful ways. That we'd find hope right now. That we'd be amazed by your grace. We just sang it this morning. Our sins there are many. Your mercies are more. We sang all my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so so good. And so would you help us to be not just a community that experiences your grace, but extends that to one another. There'd be a community of welcome, a community of hospitality, a community of kindness, a community of patience, a community of vulnerability. Would you pour out grace on us to be people who experience and who embody and reflect your love in this world? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.